Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Good evening. RFM. Yes. Hi, how are you? Hi. I'm I, fine. I Thank you. I'm back from Utah, freshly baked and bronzed. Yeah, I'll tell you, I had a few people reach out to me and say that your magic show went great, that they thought you were hilarious. Well, that's nice. And, Nobody uh, said that to me. I'm glad they're saying it to somebody. <laughs> how was Sunstone? It was great. I had a wonderful time down there at Sunstone, meeting all the great people who were there. And uh, meeting new people as well. Yeah. Did you get a chance to go to many sessions? Yes, I did. Were there any in particular that really caught your eye or were interesting? Well, I had the chance to go, but I didn't say I availed myself of the chance. Oh, okay. So there were sessions to go to. You may or may not have taken them in. Well, I don't recall um, any. You see, one of the problems is that, first off, I'm doing all these other things with other people. Yeah. and trying to meet with them and etc cetera, etc cetera. i don't want to belabor the point but also You're a big deal oh yeah i'm a yeah, big yeah. deal thank you i'm the only guy doing a magic show which may be the only magic show that's ever been done in the history of sunstone and may right. likely be the only sun uh, magic show ever ever in the future in the history of sunstone because uh, 90 minutes never flew by so fast at least as far as i was concerned what was the closing trick i can't remember i didn't get through i mean i got through oh. like a third of the material I got you. You were doing magic tricks and, and what, what happened that you didn't get very far in? Was there just a lot of stopping and it was mostly interacting me talking with the audience? Yeah, it was yeah. mostly me talking. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Having fun. I hope, I hope everybody had a good time. Well, folks, if you were there, we'd love to hear your uh, thoughts on not just RFM, but Sunstone in general. Um, but again, several people reached out, said you were hilarious and they really enjoyed your sessions. So super okay, cool. Well, if they ever want to reach out to me and let me know, I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, I just started this new series, RFM, where uh, I did one yesterday and I did one today where I talk about um, specific issues in Mormonism and walking people through, like, what does it mean to be a rational thinker? And the first one yesterday was on Adam and Eve and the Garden of Eden and all that goes into that theology. And then uh, today I did one on uh, Mormon afterlife, the three degrees of glory and outer darkness. And there's this really funny moment because I'm sitting here telling the audience and thinking it through where um, when you read how people qualify for the various kingdoms, the telestial kingdom, the lowest kingdom is for the murderers, the adulter, adulterers, the, the liars. Yeah. Right. Um, and then, and then the outer darkness is for the good people who were born into or joined Mormonism um, had a testimony at one time and then learned enough information that they deconstructed it and, and then no longer believe because now they've denied the Holy ghost. And so now they go to outer darkness. And yeah. I just thought that's quite a juxtaposition of the adulterers and the liars in the celestial kingdom and the good people who just don't buy into Mormonism anymore. And they go, they go all the way out to where Mormonism considers hell. 
Well, the bigger they are, the harder they fall, as King Kong taught us. Yeah, and 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 you were saying just as we were getting on the show, I was starting to prep you for talking about that. But you mentioned that Hitler gets to be in the Telestial Kingdom, and Bill Real gets to be in Outer Darkness, and that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, does it? Well, I don't know. I don't know. It's meant to your point of view, I guess. But yeah. you're below Hitler. That's all I know. <laughs> I am. Bill Real is below Hitler in the degrees of glory in Outer Darkness. That's yes. that's it. <laughs> but here's something that's funny. By the way, I'll come down and visit you on all the major holidays, just so you know. You're you're better than Jesus and Heavenly Father. Then they've already made it clear they're not going to come see me. The, really? If I'm in outer oh. darkness, Jesus only goes to the terrestrial kingdom, and Heavenly Father stays in the celestial kingdom. And all we would have access to in the celestial kingdom is maybe the Holy Ghost. But in the outer darkness, it's just going to be me and Lucifer hanging out. Isn't it funny that the Holy Ghost has the freedom to go to any of the kingdoms? But it's like Heavenly Father is on house arrest. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus gets to go further on vacation, right? Yeah, I, I, that seems backward to me. I don't know. But you know something? You came up with this great idea to have a show tonight on the idea of Mormonism and the way it grooms compliance in its mm -hmm. members. Yeah. But this is actually a great way to start off if you're ready to start off, Mr. Real. Because Let's do it. Really, what this is, is an example. Don't know if you thought of it that way as a lead-in. Because how else are you going to control the people who are members, faithful members of the church, except to say that if you fall away and begin to criticize the leaders, that now you're below Hitler? Yeah, it's worse for you if you join and then lose belief than if you've never joined at all. Yes, and it's better to have loved and lost, etc. <laughs> That's true. Right. Well, let's uh, let's jump into it. So the, the first thought I had as I put this... Um, this material together is the first law of heaven, right? Obedience. Obedience is the first law of heaven, the cornerstone upon which all righteousness and progression rest. Are you it quoting something there? I'm quoting Bruce R. McConkie. It consists in compliance <clears throat> with divine law, in conformity to the mind and will of deity, and in complete subjection to God and his commands. All three of those, by the way, mean obedience to the church and to its prophets because they are the middleman for knowing what uh, divine law is, what the mind and will of deity is, and what God and his commandments, what God's commandments are. That is quite the paragraph, isn't it? In yeah. that brief paragraph, Bruce R. McConkie manages to work in obedience, compliance, conformity, and complete subjection. Yeah. You learned about this when you joined. I, I know I did. What are your thoughts on how your brain as a believer wrapped yourself around the idea that the very, very ground you know, level, the, the support system for everything else is obedience? Well, um, it made complete sense to me at the time, I've got to tell you, but this is back in the late 70s. And I associated this with Bruce R. McConkie and frankly, with nobody else. And I don't know why that was, but I don't think I'm alone in that. The idea that Bruce R. McConkie was the main proponent or even the inventor of this idea that obedience is the first law of heaven. And I'll tell you just really quickly, no, that's not the case. In fact, it goes back as far as 1873. I went to the, what is it, the LDS General Conference Corpus and did some research there. And I found out that apparently, at least as far as I can tell, the first usage of this idea that obedience is the first law of heaven did come from a general conference talk in 1873 by none other than Joseph F. Smith. And after that, it was used a number of times throughout the years, 
Sometimes it waned, sometimes it waxed in the number of times it was used. There was a guy named Rulon. We actually had a GA named Rulon. Did you know that? Rulon S. Wells? Yeah, I, I, I did not. Yeah. So a familiar name, but I didn't know him either. But he, he liked this a lot. He used it a number of times back in the 1940s. In the 50s, Dilworth Young takes it over, S. Dilworth Young. He also takes it over in the 1960s. S. Dilworth Young really liked this idea. And then N. Eldon Tanner and Hartman Rector Jr. in 73. Elder G. Smith, former church patriarch, mentions it a couple of times. But no time, according to this database, which is pretty thorough, does Bruce McConkie actually ever say this in general conference. But it does appear to be, I mean, you know that he always would adopt whatever it was his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith said. Yeah. And I have perhaps uncharitably said before that Bruce McConkie never had an original idea in his head. And I, that's probably rude, but I'm not sure I see any, you know. Um, yeah, there's no examples, right? Yeah, I don't see any ex examples uh, different than that. So yeah. I think, and of course it goes from Joseph F. Smith to his son, Joseph Fielding Smith, through Joseph Fielding Smith's son-in-law, Bruce McConkie. And it's like ever's the tinkers the chance. That's the way it goes down the line. So it was not a surprise. It was a, it was a surprise to me to find out that this phrase goes back as far as 1873. But it was not a surprise to me to see it began with Joseph F. Smith because that is something that Bruce McConkie definitely would have linked into. Yeah, and and they would have hinged it. I'm going to put it up on the screen here, but they would have hinged it on this Doctrine and Covenants 130 2021. There is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven before the foundations of the world upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Like you, I didn't have any issues with this when I first learned it. But over time, it started to bother me that there's this idea that uh, love and um, the way in which Christ conducts himself in the New Testament I, I was bothered by the fact that that all kind of took a back seat to this obedience thing um, because there's so many instances as I went along in the church, there were so many instances I learned where leaders contradicted themselves or gave out things to do. And those things turned out to be really unhealthy to do. Um, for instance, some of the ideas around people of color, while the race ban was gone by the time I joined, there were numerous members in my ward, including my father-in-law, who would continue to teach those ideas because no one ever told them to stop. Um, not that those people were still prohibited from the priesthood, but that those members, including my father-in-law, still believed that the curse was real before 78, that members of color were less valiant. And as I started to kind of reckon with that, I could see how unhealthy it was to just repeat what the leaders say uh, I think it's the reason why, and again, no offense to women who do this in the church, but the women who have primary voice, it's the reason I think it's it kind of triggers us is because it is that voice of compliance. Hmm. Right. And I will just finish off this other thing by saying that the most recent iteration of this idea of obedience as the first law of heaven was 2013, Thomas S. Monson, who actually quotes back to the 1873 original address by Joseph F. Smith. And after that, I don't see it anymore. But I think that's largely likely because a different phrase has taken its place, which is the covenant path. The covenant path. Mm. Which is the we same can, thing. Right. One equals the other. To be on the covenant path is to be compliant to the church and its leaders. Right. You need to get on it and stay on it with exactness. Yeah. 
Yeah, don't be a uh, Leahona Mormon. Be an iron rotter. Exactly. And certainly never, ever be a lazy learner. Yeah, D- certainly not that. Uh, also, I wanted to note in this section about obedience being the first law of heaven, Moses 5, 5 through 6, and 1 Nephi 3, 7 uh, both get across a point, which is that it's important to obey God even when we may not fully understand the commandment. We'll get into some of these stories here later on, but just to note that there are scriptural examples where somebody kind of questions the Lord and it never turns out well when they try to encourage God to do something different than what they want to do. For instance, Nephi and Laban, Abraham and Isaac, and there's others too, which we'll get into. But um, any thoughts there before I move out of this section? No, and you said you want to get back to those two stories and those two scriptural references later. Yeah. Okay, then I'll wait. Okay. Um, the second part I wanted to do is I wanted to name all the places, and Maven, if you if you're wanting to come on, I'd love to, to have you be part of this conversation. Um, and I'm going to find here where I can put a name for her up on the screen. If perfect, let me get rid. Hi, Maven. This one. Hello. <clears throat> Hi, everybody. So this section, what I wanted to do is name all the places in Mormonism where it uh, nudges you strongly to be compliant. And uh, I had come up with about a dozen, and then I reached out to folks on Facebook and asked if anybody had any other ideas that they would want to add to this list. And I took the best ones and put them on here. But I thought before I went through the list, Maven, I'd give you a chance to just talk because I think the ways in which women are asked to be compliant and the ways in which men are asked to be compliant, there is overlap, but there's also very distinct differences. Any thoughts from you on uh, Mormonism's pushing you and other women to be compliant? I have a couple thoughts. Just a couple. <laughs> Please. Um, so I, uh, um, am I like jumping in? Is this like my, my big moment or is this, or is that later where I go into detail? You can have as many big moments okay. as you want, but this is at least one of them. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, there's just a lot of ways. So let me see if I can go ahead and I'm going to move this over and share my screen just so I can get some of these sources up and then I'll give them to you so that they could be part of the show notes also. Here we go. Um, okay, sorry. I'm just getting Ooh, this all together and then I, I just kind of like messed it up here. So um, there's a few things that are done, I think with women specifically um, that the men don't see as much. Um, and the, the very first thing I would say is the denial of any kind of inequality or subordination of the women to men, despite all the teachings that clearly show otherwise um it's still common for the church to just blatantly deny that there is any sexism or any equality or inequality um i'm gonna go ahead if anything by the way i just want to stop you for a second if anything mormonism tries to frame it as though the men need more help and right so the so the women don't get as much opportunity uh, and there's and women are treated differently because they already have a head start on spirituality compared to the men Right. And that, that leads into a kind of a second point of like benevolent yeah. sexism, which is yeah. that kind of like putting us up on a pedestal. Um, mm-hmm. But that is in addition, I think, to just the outright denial of, of inequality. And so I am trying to find the uh, source that I have. OK, so this is from an article called 
Oh, yes, women are incredible. Let me go ahead and share my screen. Mm -hmm. Here we go. And I'll put it up there. Um, okay, so this is, yeah, this is just part of it. Um, and it's pointing out to, you know, non-members. Um, I'll actually come here. Well, it's talking about financial compensation. Um, and if we start in the middle, it says, we of course told her about the Relief Society, Young Women and Primary Organizations that are guided by women presidents. And we noted that from our earliest history, both men and women pray, perform the music, give the sermons and sing in the choir, even in sacrament meeting, our most sacred meeting. So this I think is, I think deliberately deceptive to a non-member by trying yeah. to make sound like we have equal roles in the church while deliberately leaving out all of the roles that women can't have and all of the ones that we are are barred from, of course. But if you just put it this way and you say things in just the right way, it sounds like we are on equal footing um, when we're really not. Um, and then... It also notice, too, the types of things women are allowed to do and the types of things men are allowed to do are, are not only just different, but there really isn't a lot of uh, administrative potential to change things in any of these positions. Right. And can I, I'll just add here that one of the things that is overwhelming to me by this point in my career is that for the church to write things like this, they have to know that equality is the desired goal. That's what people want. If they didn't think that people wanted it, they wouldn't frame their right. articles to make it sound like Right. They are equal when actually they're not. And there's so much stuff that goes on into this. But that's the basic fundamental principle I get from it. They talk about from our earliest history, men and women have prayed while leaving out the fact that women have not prayed in sacrament meeting until the 1970s, by the way. That's right. true, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, didn't ex I didn't expect to see this, but that's true. 1970s. Go ahead. What were you saying, Maven? Oh, and then not till much later in conference. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, I mean, and women did so. pray. So I think, I think this is one of those times where like something was allowed earlier on in the church that wasn't, um, but you can just kind of skip over the part that it, just like sometimes people do with the, with the uh, issue with uh, blacks and the priesthood, just being like, mm -hmm. well, there, Joseph Smith ordained a black man. And then just kind of skip over all the rest of it that happened until 1978. Yeah. Right. We let women pray in the choir. I mean, what the heck else do you want, Maven? <laughs> Right. I'm not sure how we have a choir without the the altos and the sopranos, but still equal but different. Right, right, right. Um, so this was another quote from the same article: "Women are daughters of our heavenly Father who loves them." That's a call out to the uh, um, the chant that I ritualistically chanted every single Sunday as a young woman. Um, and then right there, wives are equal to their husbands. Marriage requires a full partnership where wives and husbands work side by side to meet the needs of the family. Who's in uh, charge? Who presides? Who has stewardship? Who makes the final decision? <laughs> right. Um, and then I'm going to put this up. These are some tweets. This was like from forever ago, but I was getting into it um, with somebody. And so uh, just about inequality and sexism in the church. And so this is one of the things that they, you know, had said, um, of course, which I responded to. A lot of people responded to. But I just wanted to kind of chop out the uh, main bits. But it just shows that I think the, the typical attitude that's still in the church, you know, and here um, he's talking about, you know, motherhood is the uh, that's the great calling that women get. Um, and uh, 
well, this is kind of going into the the next point here was with that benevolent sexism that you're talking about, that it's the highest calling um, that anyone can have. So this next, oh, sorry, did you want to say something? No, I've heard this a million times before, but only now is it striking me that if motherhood is a calling, why is this a calling that's available to every woman inside and outside of the church? And right. it lasts forever. Or you not are a, a mother eternally. Women, you know, it's not a calling. That's right. ridiculous. <laughs> and if you're single, you know, then that's not available to you. And then, or if you're married, but you're not able to have children, it's also not available to you. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So this one, so I, let me go back to my screen. So this is from, um, uh, this is a general conference talk that Russell M. Nelson did in 99, I think, Our Sacred Duty to Honor Women. Um, and actually, I'm going to, that's at the bottom. Let me scroll up here. There's like all kinds of garbage in this, of course, but let's see. Yeah. So the first one here, many years ago, the first presidency issued a statement that has had a profound and lasting influence upon me. Motherhood, they wrote, is near to divinity. It is the highest, holiest service to be assumed by mankind. It places her who honors its holy calling and service next to the angels. So that sounds really sweet and dear. And then the second quote here. Well, um, it puts him next to the watchers, at least. There you go. <laughs> um, Such and a sweet just, spirit. Yeah, I just want to make sure. This, yeah, okay. This is the quote that I want. Actually, so it's, why don't you read it, RFM? Oh, thank you. Honor the sisters. Okay. And this is President Nelson, eh? Mm -hmm. We who bear the holy priesthood have a sacred duty to honor our sisters, especially the ones we're married to. We are old enough and wise enough to know that teasing is wrong. We respect sisters, not only in our immediate families, but all the wonderful sisters in our lives. As daughters of God, their potential is divine. Without them, eternal life would be impossible. Our high regard for them should spring from our love of God and from an awareness of their lofty purpose in his great eternal plan. Right. So there's a lot of good praising words in there. High regard for them, lofty purpose. Um, so there's um, a, yeah. yeah. And don't forget, you can talk in meetings, but don't talk too much and put a little right. lipstick on. And, right. Yeah. And then this last one here, um, Bill, do you want to read this one? Honor the special sisters in your lives, brethren. Express your love to your wife, to your mother and to the sisters. Praise them for their forbearance with you, even oh. when you are not at your best. Thank the Lord for these sisters who, like our Heavenly Father, love us not only for what we are, but for what we may become. Humbly, I thank God for my mother, my sisters, my daughter, granddaughters, and for my special sweetheart, companion, and friend, my wife. <clears throat> may God bless us to honor each virtuous woman. I pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. And then he has to hurry home because the women are all making him cookies. So yeah, him and his that, boy can eat that them. is that talk. I think it is the same one. <clears throat> oh, my um, gosh. Right here. Yeah, it's at the beginning where he's talking. Oh, no. Isn't that sweet? It is that talk. <laughs> yes, that, that, the very one. Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, irony yeah, is sometimes so, fun. And that's why there's a lot of really sincere belief among members of the church that uh, that they honor women, that we love women. It, we're not sexist at all. We're not we're not subjugating them. We're not putting them down. No, if anything, we lift them up. And it's it's because of this kind of rhetoric. But it, it's to serve a purpose, which is to to make those who are in a and an inferior and a subordinate position with no real power, you know, feel better, feel like they do have power. Um, and so the the next kind of a, I guess, um, 
uh, oh, by the way, by yeah. the way, Maven, I'm sorry, just because people, some people may be listening to this without the screen later. Mm -hmm. Can I read that part about the donuts? You want it? Yep. Go ahead. Go ahead. This is and earlier in the talk where, yeah. where President Nelson is saying a little bit too much, perhaps, about how he actually views women. Tonight, I am attending with a son, sons-in-law, and grandsons. Where are the women? Oh, I don't know. Where, oh, it says, where are their mothers? Gathered in the kitchen of our home, exclamation point. What are they doing? Making large batches of homemade donuts, exclamation point. Mm. And when we return home, we will feast on those donuts. While we enjoy them, these mother, sisters, and daughters will listen intently as each of us speaks of things he learned here tonight. Mm. It's a nice family tradition, at least for the guys. Symbolic <laughs> of the fact that everything we learn and do as priesthood bears should bless our families. I think that little vignette speaks yeah. volumes. Yeah. Yep. And that, that's the whole talk, our sacred duty to honor women. So, um, and then this is this is a clip from my Mormon story, but it's, it's actually more... Um, uh, of Jen and John talking. And uh, I know some people really say like they hate it when John like, like, you know, restates something or, or interrupts. But this was actually really, um, I guess, a learning moment for me because when he's going to start talking. And I remember when I heard him say this, like my first initial reaction was to, uh, to say, oh, no, you're you're you've totally got this wrong. But before I could even really do that, I realized that what he's saying was correct. And Jen had a similar um Kind of reaction we both wanted to say no john this you're wrong but um but i think you really nailed it and so i'll go ahead and uh, put that up here this it's just like a minute or two here i mean um, if i'm if i'm a mormon mom raising a mormon girl i want her to know that she's got limits because her whole life is going to be about limits and being in the box so part of my training for her is to make sure she knows she can't do everything she wants to do it's kind of the opposite of the girl scout message because she's gonna her education she may or may not get and she's gonna have kids and she's not gonna be able to have a career she's not gonna be able to pursue her education as much as she wants and she's gonna be a stay-at-home mom i mean am i wrong the feeling uh, i had it when when john started to talk to you i kind of had a pushback too like in my mind because but not yes like what what you're saying is true like that is like they do they do need to let us women female know that like what our place is but they've been taught how to spin it to where we think that we're so that's such an amazing role like that's what you want that's what is like it's just I don't know. They they spin it to be this amazing amazing thing, like you know, and a non selfish thing, and like all these words they they use to praise you to be in that role. I think part of it's self assurance, yeah. also because that's where they're at. So it's reassuring to themselves that they also made the right decision. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You just said it like right. point point blank, yeah. and both of us probably are like. Wait, yeah. but then it, it is that, yeah. but then they spin it at this weird yeah. thing and it makes you, your mind and your body actually like react. Yeah. Cause they'll never funny. say, they'll never say, well, you're not going to really pursue your education to its first You're not going to go to college. You're not going to be able to do what you want it's to. It's more, not, you get yeah. to be a mom and mom is the most sacred thing, yeah. right? That's what the church mm. says. <laughs> yeah. But I was just, you know, my mom and my sisters were all taught, 
a woman doesn't need more than a couple years of college. And the whole purpose of going to college is to find your eternal companion. Or to have something, if your husband dies, then you might have, have something, something to fall, to back, fall on. back on. Like those yeah. are the two narratives. Yeah. But yeah, I I don't even think I was told that I should go to college. Yeah. But I'm, yeah. Yeah. It, and I was I was very smart. Like yeah. I took AP classes in high school. I tried to get as much calls, college as I could in high school because I knew in my mind what was sent. Yeah. What, you know, what was expected of me. So, you know, I had, you know, super high grades and was super smart and was taking like AP calculus and history and like all of these things to try and get myself ahead. And it's just now looking back, I'm like so sad. Mm. Wow. And that makes me sad too. She's a smart cookie. I had no idea. And there, there's so many like that. And this was actually a, a story that helped a, a friend of mine get out of the church, uh, not Jen's, but a similar one. And it was, they were just reading somebody else talk about uh, a girl in their class in high school who was like a part of some like student UN thing. Like she went to Washington DC, like she was involved in all of these things. Um, but then went the Mormon church route, got married to a priesthood holder, RM, had children. He ended up cheating and left. So she's, you know, this a single mom and trying to get, you know, raise her kids as best she can. And um, and I remember that was, you know, my friend reading that and just feeling sad and thinking, you know, this woman could have done a lot. And and not that it was bad that she was a mom, you know, but just it's kind of the same thing. You're just that's the only thing that you're really supposed to be. Um, and the other things you're you're not supposed to because they'll they'll overshadow. So um yeah, so that's um, again part of the the benevolent sexism there. Um, but I did also want to talk about. Um, actually, I did want to show. Um, okay, no, sorry, that's the next. So the next thing actually would be a comparison: um, women of the world, like versus the the ones that are righteous. And I, I like Bill kind of how you said it in a patriarchal system. Uh, even though women have a subordinate role, they still win or are elevated by supporting the patriarchy. And we see that a lot in the church, the women that are in line, that are falling in line, that are doing what they're asked to, they are praised for it um, versus, you know, evil women, worldly women, you know, and, and a lot of time it has to do, I feel like a lot of this shaming is about bodies and sexuality. So you can be a godly woman or you can be a slut or a whore. And it's kind of like a difference between these two. And they kind of, the church also likes to take over motherhood as if it's their idea, you know, um, or Mormons are the only ones that have ever wanted to be mothers or love their children. You know, they kind of take it over. So they get, worldly women can't be loving mothers either. Um, and so I, uh, so one of the examples actually of a kind of, this is a, let me go back to, um, oh, this is, oh, sorry. Let me get to the right one here. This is, here we go. This was a tweet that was sent to me about being uh, single, um, just kind of making fun of me, you know, like, uh, you know, as if I, I never wanted children and I don't want children now, but it's, that's not the reason I don't have them. It's just because I didn't marry young um, like most Mormon women do. So if I had, I, I, you know, even being asexual, I didn't know that then. So if I had married young, I would have had children uh, right away. So it's just, you know, again, just the kind of this demonization, because I'm obviously on Twitter setting myself up, you know, under Maven, I'm obviously out of the church. So there is this kind of a, you know, so this is just one example. 
Holding um, up the patriarchy, yeah. Right, yeah. And again, like this is me kind of being like disobedient, but it's also ironic because I'm still single. So like even if I were to have children, that would also be outside of this parameter. So he's making fun of me for not having children. But if I did, then that would be outside of marriage. And so then I would be, you know, a slut for it. So right. it's kind of like no. You can't, yeah, you can't there. win. Yeah. Um, so I did want to bring up an article again. Let me share. Well, let's see. Let me get it. Um Yeah, here we go. Sorry, I'm going to share my screen. We'll switch out of that. Okay. All right. So this is um, this is the joy of womanhood. This is General Conference in um, 2000. Um, is this given by a woman? I, it is. Who was Okay, it? that's good. Yeah. Margaret D. Nadald. So we'll come okay. back to Sorry. Um, okay. Grateful, grateful daughters of God guard their bodies carefully for they know they are the wellspring of life and they reverence life. They don't uncover their bodies to find favor with the world. They walk in modesty to be in favor with their father in heaven for they know he loves them dearly. So there's obviously this dichotomy set up of like good women versus, you know, not good women. And even if they don't explicitly say like what the not good women are doing just by this kind of language, they're making the implication pretty clear, I think. Um, and, uh, down further, this is one of, I think one of her more famous quotes, um, women of God can never be like women of the world. The world has enough women who are tough. We need women who are tender. There are enough women who are coarse. We need women who are kind. There are enough women who are rude. We need women who are refined. We have enough women of fame and fortune. We need more women of faith. That's we an interesting a, dichotomy right there, mm -hmm. isn't it? Fame and fortune or faith, right? Those yeah. are your choices. Right. We have enough greed. We need more goodness. We have enough vanity. We need more virtue. We have enough popularity. We need more purity. Was she talking to the male church leadership in this? What? Mm. I'm sorry. I just hear her words as being very applicable to a lot of church leadership, mm. the men. The men in the red seats. Yeah. But they're exceptions. Yeah. <laughs> the rules don't apply to them, right? So, right. yeah. So, again, so this, again, this is the dichotomy set up. There's good women and, and there's bad women. And so you get praise um, in the church by being a good woman and by doing the things that you are asked to do. Um, I think um, I do have another one. Yeah, I see this as saying we want women who are compliant and none who will stand up for themselves. Yeah. Right, right. Um, I don't I don't have this article up, but this is actually in the um this is Joseph F. Smith um and in the like in the teachings of Joseph F. Smith. Uh it's not for us to and he's it's about us women, us women to be led by women of the world. It's for us to lead the women of the world in everything that is praiseworthy. So so we're the only ones that have anything praiseworthy. Um anything outside of that is not um and then sherry do did a talk saying you know are we not all mothers um and she says uh, motherhood is more than bearing children it is the essence of who we are as women we just can't let the lord down and if the day comes when we are the only women on earth who find nobility and divinity in motherhood so be it uh, for the mother is the word that will define a righteous woman made perfect in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom, a woman who is qualified for eternal increase in posterity, wisdom, joy, and influence. So again, like just even the idea that there would come a time when Mormons are the only ones that um, 
that hold up womenhood or womanhood and motherhood. Um, it's just kind of a ridiculous idea, but it's, it is, you know, it's there as part of the exceptionalism, I think. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, and then, so praise, I've already kind of talked about that. Uh, just, we get a lot of praise for all of the good things that we do, um, for being pure, for being virtuous. Um, this is, uh, talking about influence. This was another tweet where, you know, a guy, again, in response to a lot of my accusations about sexism was saying that, you know, women have influenced my life more than men. And, um, you know, which of course that doesn't mean that they have any power or authority or there's equality there at all, like that they're completely separate things. Um, let me go to, um, this is back to the women are incredible talk. And this is more at the end, I think. By the way, this, this Twitter thing you have up here, Maven, uh -huh. from this anonymous person, uh -huh. even there, let me see if I can collect my thoughts here. Where it says, I, I'm have you know, I'll have you know, I think he meant, I'll have you know that women have influenced my life. This is a male, right? This is a right. guy talking it. Right. Way more than any man. And I'm not saying that no man has influenced my life. Well, at one and the same time, even if we take for granted that he's being correct and truthful about this, right? Maybe thinking about his mom. Isn't that really saying what I perceive as the whole problem, which is that women are there to influence the men? That's really their role is to be the support for the men. Mm -hmm. And he's claiming that is a good thing when actually I think that is a large part of the problem. That women's sole purpose is to support the men and to make them better priesthood leaders. Right. Yeah. I want to put up this quote here with Mike. Um, when The worst is when it's women telling other women how to be women and it's a twisted victory for patriarchy. Um, make them believe that they want patriarchy to win and let them force it themselves. And, and this is a big part of the, you know, this the dichotomy of having the church, you know, but have this, you know, the, there's the good women and the bad women is is that's how we judge each other and um, and judge ourselves. And so that, and that is part of the, because there's a win again, there's a win for women who support the patriarchy. And so by necessity, then they're on that side. So you know, so the women who are standing up, you know, or when I'm posting on, on Twitter about things that are unequal, it, a lot of times it was also it was women also coming back and defending their roles and defending the church because that's the only way for them to win. And they don't know it, you know, but that's, you know, it's that's the air that we breathe right now. So, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> here's just, an, you know, praise. This is from the LDS Women Are Incredible. Dear sisters, we love and admire you. We appreciate your service in the Lord's kingdom. You are incredible. I express particular appreciation for the women in my life, just like this other guy here, right? I testify of the reality of the atonement, divinity of the Savior, and restoration of church in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, um, yeah, let's see. Um, and then, um, oh, so this goes back actually to the one, the episode that um, Nicole and I did on the role of women, where we talk about exceptions. Um, and I think that's a good episode just all together if anyone hasn't seen that to go see it. But the the whole point of occasionally holding up exceptions to the misogyny and the inequality um, in order to give an idea that, you know, again, that the inequality that is there, it actually isn't there. Because, look, there's these women that are doing these things, even though they're not technically being compliant with the teachings of the church. Um and I read, I don't have it with me, but there was a study actually showing that it's really common for women to be and, and defend compliance and traditional gender roles, even when they are not 
fitting them. And that's something that I, I know because I did myself, like as a single woman all the way up as I was still faithful, I was still I was still seeing a married woman as an ideal, even though even when I started realizing that I, I am pretty happy on my own, I don't feel like I need to be all that upset and, and hurt that I'm not married right now. Um, I did feel a little guilt about that. And I still felt like the ideal is to be married. And that is still, you know, I would have still supported that, even though I'm I was living outside of that, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, the next thing, sorry, I, I'm basically done here. I've just got two more points that I think is, are specifically more towards women. Um, and so the next one is ignoring dissent and ignoring women's voices, except for when they support, you know, the the men, the patriarchy. Um, and, and so that and that's kind of going into what I've said before, I guess. Um, but when I think what was it was Erickson, um, the the church apologist, you know, he had said some, someone had asked him in a Q&A where they you know, let people ask live questions and, and not submit them ahead of time, asked about Helen Mark Kimball and, you know, some of these other problematic young brides in the early church. And that's what, you know, one of the things he said at that time was let the women speak for themselves or, you know, look at what they said because they were supporters of polygamy. And that's the only reason why they want their stories to be looked at, because there are other women that were not supporters of polygamy. And they, their church is never like, well, let's see what what the women who hated it said or let's see what the women who were open about the poverty they were in said about it right. they don't want those voices they yeah. want the faithful ones um yeah. and then this was something i i want to see if i can find it here um here we go i'm gonna add this up so this was another tweet um and this was actually in response to me like specifically pointing out that the church silences women except for when they support the patriarchal narrative um, and even excommunicating women that don't. Um, it, it's the same guy, but this is what he said. Let the women speak for themselves instead of telling them how they should feel. And it's just so ironic because like, here I am. I am a woman. You're a woman speaking for yourself. Speaking for myself. Yeah. And, and, but it's just completely ignoring me because I'm not supporting the narrative. So he doesn't want right to me. Yeah. <clears throat> he wants me to listen to the women that are falling in line. And I just, yeah. I, you know, I, when I got that, I just was like, oh man, I, I don't, I, I was speechless for a little bit. I don't like, I don't even know how to respond to that because it's, mm. it, it should be just so obvious, but you know, yeah. obviously isn't. And then the last little bit, I guess I would say just the idea of a false agency, a lot of, we really want to feel like we're equal and we want to feel like we have agency. So we're really good at deceiving ourselves into thinking that, but it really is kind of that, you know, Emma's choice. It's this, you know, you have agency to be obedient to what you're told or not. So it's not really an agency like to get married or not get married. It's, or, or to have children when you want and how many you feel comfortable with and how many you feel like you can devote adequate resources and care and attention to. Um, that's never it. It's always, you know, be obedient or not, and then it'd be worldly or not, and be the, a, a divine, sweet mother or or be a whore, you know, a, a vain, childish, you know, childless, you know, person that just, you know, is uh, focused on money or whatever else that they want to use to kind of degrade what any anything outside of motherhood that women could do. So put a little lipstick on, but don't put on too right. much. Right. Yep. So um, those, that's it for the the specifically like female thing, but everything else we're going to talk about today, like yeah. applies to everyone, I think. 
Yeah, there's a few more here. I'll piggyback on the things you've said. I'll list, I'll, I'll just kind of share this list I put together of things that I came up with, things that people on Facebook came up with. Number one, it starts young. Don't say no to a boy at a dance. Uh, at a young age, girls have to get used to complying to the men in their lives. They are priesthood holders. They preside. You know, when your bishop asks to see you, you go see your bishop. Uh, when your dad wants to have, uh, uh, you know, whatever it is, give a father's blessing or whatever, you essentially are at the whim of whatever the men in your life want to do. Um, C, what eight-year-old says no to baptism? Isn't it strange that no one says no? If everyone says yes, is it really a choice? And I, I no. just want to go back to the saying, um, not saying no to boys at dances. Um because that also that also continued into like young single adult wards and whatnot. There was kind of this feeling that even if you really didn't like a guy, just the fact that he was brave enough to ask you, like that he should be rewarded with at least one date, kind of a thing. Like, uh, you know, and and you don't even really know him. So like, even if you think you don't like him, maybe you'll change your mind. So there was yeah. that, but that also, I, I mean, that's how we're raised. But then on the flip side, with law of chastity, like we're given the task of telling boys no then and so it's no wonder that so many women and girls in the church mm. don't do that don't do that don't even know how to do that so this is the only time that we're ever told it's okay to say no and we just do not have the tools to do that at all and i um this was something i was realizing the other it was something that i worried about and i didn't realize at the time but i just figured out now I, w I was worried about basically a sexual assault, but I wasn't thinking of it that way in my mind. I was thinking about what if I'm, I'm not faithful enough to be like firm enough with a boy in saying no. What if he like, you know, he wins, I guess, is kind of how I was thinking it. Like between me saying no and a guy being persistent, you know, and he wins and I give in or whatever. And I never, you know, I was worried not about like a like a physically forced like he pushes me down and I'm screaming no kind of a thing or something but just yeah just that I wouldn't he wins the negotiation yeah I didn't yeah. I couldn't actually think of a scenario where I could be strong enough to like you know like run away or something like that just I don't know I just felt like a guy could uh, convince me against my will and that that would be my fault but if it was against my will then that would be an assault and I but I didn't think of it that way I just thought of yeah. it as I, if, if it's anything short of me like physically being forced to, it's my fault. I was already thinking about it that way and worrying about it as a teenager. Yeah. Mm. You know, wow. I, I love that. Can I say um, that this is one reason why women should be tough? Yeah. Which he, again, in the other quote, he says not to be right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Sister, you're, you're to be submissive enough women who are tough when we need women who are tender right Sub but submissive women allow unhealthy men to continue to be unhealthy yeah. Hmm. yeah yeah and it's not an either or it's a false dichotomy it's not tender or tough why can't we be tender and tough and why can't right. the men as well yeah. be tender and tough at appropriate times totally all right um we talked about eight-year-olds don't get to really say no at baptism because no eight-year-old says no at baptism. All eight-year-olds in the church get baptized who are part of active families. There may be a rare example somewhere, but it's a rare example. Um, it's persistent. Don't say no to a calling. Um, get married young. Don't put off having children. Don't use birth control. Have lots of children. It culminates in the temple. Do you covenant to obey your husband as he obeys God? Bow your head and say yes. Give all your time, talent, and everything you possess to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Contention is of the devil. 
making disagreement bad in a higher authority always wins. God commanding Adam to sacrifice animals, Moses 5, 4, 7. Adam follows the command for many days until eventually an angel appears and asks Adam why he is performing the sacrifices. Adam responds, I know not, save the Lord commanded me. In other words, you do not need a reason to obey. The non-Levite studying the ark, right? There's somebody who comes in to do a good thing because the thing's going to tip over and they're smitten down. Uh, follow the prophet. He can't lead us astray. What does this even mean since there are numerous occasions where false doctrines have been taught and believed? That principle has been reiterated. Harold B. Lee, Gordon B. Hinckley. I think it started with either Heber C. Kimball or Wilford Woodruff. Um, when the prophet speaks, the debate is over. Uh, the Enzyme, November 1978, page 108. Um, perpetual inadequacy instead of critical thinking. You are broken and fallen, and you need us more than we need you, so get in line. Um, agency doesn't work the way we thought. Agency is only to provide a space to choose God at all times. You have agency in order to show willing compliance. I'll put up on the screen here. Yeah, this is kind of a, a new twist, isn't it? This is, because we need to stop here and just preface this. When, when I joined the church in 1996 and you joined the church in 78, mm -hmm. we were taught that in Mormonism, there was free agency. Now I know they've changed it. They took out free and then just went to agency, but right. now and we're doing something very different. So Right. And so what it was before was simply the, the obvious, obvious grammatical, grammatical kind, of thing, kind of thing where I'm hearing myself echo, echo as I speak as I now. Oh, let me, um, I, I, I oh, got you. Perfect. There you go. Thank you. Uh, just that free agency is a redundancy because agency itself has the meaning of being free, right? Yeah. You're an agent, so you're free, but that's all that I heard before because nowhere in the scriptures does it say free agency. It says agency, but agency means free agency just by its very definition. But now elder Bednar is trying to, can I just say what it is? I think he's trying to do. He's trying to take away the freedom that God has given us according to LDS theology and that a war in heaven was fought over for crying out loud in LDS theology. And what he and other people have done during the course of the history of the church is try slowly and incrementally to take away the freedom of people to make choices within an LDS context while still pretending that it's there. It's quite similar to what they do with the women, right, Maven? Is they... Yeah. They, they will say that you're equal while everything they do shows that you're not. Right. Yeah. I, I like, I just put up this quote here. Agency is no longer it ends with baptism. It does. And, and we'll get into that further with the mission thing. Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. So let me unmute this and we'll play elder Bednar who completely takes away agency and essentially says, once you've joined the church, you're, you're committed. The principle of moral agency is the least understood of all gospel principles. It is by the way, I'm going to pause you for a second. Just notice, <laughs> by the way, notice, by the way, um, there, the way this is chopped up is they're in an area where they're speaking, I believe, Spanish. He says some things and then the interpreter translates. He says some things. The interpreter translates. They Whoever put this together might have been Jonathan Streeter. I think, in fact, I know it is because now in the bottom right, it says thinker of thoughts. Um, Jonathan cuts out all the Spanish stuff. So you have these stoppages of time where a block of time is missing where the interpreter is giving it. 
And it's really weird because you'll notice Sister Bednar's face doesn't shift or move in some of these places. It's almost like she is completely out of it. Um, and, and again, not to make a story here where there isn't, I just, I really do worry about what her situation is because the dynamic of how these two interact is really most people, a lot of people that are outside the church notice it. It's kind of odd. I don't notice it with any other general authority or their wife. It, it just seems to be here. So maybe I'm making a story where there isn't, but anyway, I wanted to point that out. Sorry, I muted the screen. That are not appropriate. As I listen to members of the church all over the world, this is how they define agency. It's the ability to choose and I can do what I want. That's false. Why do we have agency? Go find in the Pearl of Great Price, in the book of Moses, God's explanation for why we have agency. Like it is to choose him, not to choose what we want, but to choose God and to love and serve each other. Now, buckle up. Are you buckled up? Okay, here we go. When you and I enter the baptismal covenants, there are three conditions of the covenant. A willingness to take upon ourselves the name of Christ, a commitment to always remember him, and a commitment to keep the commandments. We learn about those elements of the covenant, and we exercise our agency to accept those conditions of the covenant. We then are promised that if we honor the covenant, we may always have God's spirit to be with us. Okay. As we pledge our willingness to take upon ourselves the name of Christ, that begins in the waters of baptism. It begins. We do not wholly and totally take upon ourselves the name of Christ in the not waters the, of baptism. Not. We begin. Where do we more fully take upon ourselves the name of Christ? In templo. There's a pathway from the baptismal font to the templo. Al templo. And there is increasing blessings by the power of the Holy Ghost that come into our life. As we begin to have the name of Christ come upon us through ordinances and covenants, we have a new family name, Christian. And with that name, we are to represent him at all times and in all places and in all things. Now, this is why you need to be buckled up. When we enter into that covenant, and begin to have the name of Christ come upon us, our agency is enlarged. It's no longer individual agency. It is enlarged to become representative agency and representing Christ and his name at all times, in all places, and in all things becomes more important than what we want. The reason we need to always remember him is so we can effectively represent him the reason we need the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Yes, that blesses us. But we need that companionship of the third member of the Godhead so we can represent him. We have already pledged that we will keep the commandments. Have you heard someone say, a member of the church who has entered into the baptismal covenant, I have my agency, I can do what I want. You ever heard that? Yeah, you know what the answer is? No, you can't. You don't understand agency. You don't have agency to do whatever you want. We have the hymn, Choose the Right, don't we? In Espanol? The hymn is called Choose the Right, not Choose What You Want. So from tonight on, don't ever use a misunderstood concept of agency to justify sin. You can't just choose what you want. And when you begin to understand that principio, then you're on the road to becoming spiritually self-reliant, dependent upon God, and devoted to representing Him 
all the time, Now, I want to say this in terms that I hope won't be scary, but they're true. If, after having entered into the covenant, we don't abide by the conditions of the covenant. So, for example, if you and I don't pay our tithing, do we have the option not to pay our tithing? Carlos Diemos? Nope. No. It's breaking a covenant. It is not the exercise of agency anymore. Because what happened to our individual agency? It was enlarged. Now it's more important to represent him. Is this making sense? No. no. If some night you don't want to go to sleep, read the scriptures and learn about what happens to covenant breakers. I guarantee you, you will not go to sleep. Now, I don't want to scare you, but I want you to understand this is serious. Agency is the center point of our mortal experience. With that agent, with that agency, we are agents to act. That's self-reliance. We are not objects to be acted upon. That is the absence of self-reliance. Now, go find more in the scriptures. That's just the beginning. Oh my lord. I've never seen that before. I can't hear you, Bill. Hey, just to note, he's creating a straw man in part, and, and see if I can explain this right. Um, the church often sets it up as whether you're going to follow Jesus or not. And the reality, though, is that how it actually plays out in Rubber Meets the Road is that you, what he's teaching you is that you only have agency insofar as to choose to do exactly what the church tells you to do. And if you do not have the agency to do anything other than the thing you're supposed to do, which isn't agency at all. Well, no. And the thing that strikes me is that when you boil his convoluted talk down, what he says is that the more your agency expands, the less freedom you have to choose. Yeah. Yeah. What bothers me is the idea that everyone else thinks that we could just do whatever we want without any consequences. I think, um, and I'm sorry, I was distracted a little bit. So if that was something that you just said, then I, I apologize for repeating it. But um, it's just, I think that's my biggest pet peeve with the way the church talks about agency is the idea that nobody else like wants any consequences. And, and again, it, it kind of points to the whole idea that you can either choose right and good and have good things happen, or you can choose the wrong thing, but then there's a, there's gotta be a punishment and you're trying to avoid punishment from your bad choices when really it's just different choices, you know, like, like literally a cup of coffee, you know, or just some clothes that are, are different than what you like, you know, a tank top. This is not we're, we are not talking about murdering we're not talking about committing adultery you know we are talking about being individuals here and being able you have two earrings to in have a life yeah so there's also this lds uh principle which is we teach them good principles and we let them govern themselves i've been told that a thousand times in church meetings and and the reality is i would love it, it will never happen but i would love in one of these meetings when something stupid like this is said for someone to raise their hand and go what about the idea that we teach them good principles and we let them govern themselves. When you tell people that, yes, you have a choice, but not really, you must make every choice the way the church tells you you should make it. Otherwise, you're a covenant breaker, and we all know what happens to covenant breakers is a very different thing than what, what is uh, the reality of how healthy people handle this principle, which is 
we, we do learn. People help us understand the various ways that we can act in this world. And then we get to choose how we go forward and act. And there are consequences for being unhealthy. And there are consequences for treating people in healthy ways. And we should have the right and privilege, as some of Mormonism teaches, to be able to figure that out. Right. And I like what uh, Maven had said, which is what is so hard about saying agency means you get to choose what you want to do. And if you choose what the Lord wants you to do, you'll be blessed. And if you don't choose what the Lord wants you to do, then bad things happen. I thought that was the basic idea of Mormonism. And yet now we have Elder Bednar, who's talking about erasing agency completely from the blackboard. Yeah, there in some ways, Mormonism is is progressing, and in other ways, it's stepping backwards, isn't it? Yeah, there's a lot of retrenchment going on. And number one, uh, when I first started making comments while it was playing, and I apologize for that, the thing about Elder Bednar is that in almost every talk he gives, he wants to communicate to the audience that he's smarter than everybody else in the church, that he has some insight into whatever doctrinal principle that he's going to expound upon that has never occurred to anybody else before and everybody else misunderstands it. And that's kind of why I, I face palmed on that part. The second thing is that when I look at him speaking, uh, I think, okay, so after this address, does a third of the host of heaven follow him? Yeah, it is a plan with no choice, isn't it? Yeah, he's get he is totally, this is, this is the Mormon Lucifer. I don't know if he's played that part in the temple too much or something, but yeah, this is totally, you have no agency. And now he's going to make it representative agency. Well, I'll tell you something, Elder Bednar. I actually haven't done a search, but I'm going to bet you right now that I know free agency doesn't appear in the scriptures, but I'm also going to get you that moral agency doesn't appear in the scriptures. And I'm sure as heck going to bet you that representative agency does not appear in the scriptures. He's just playing with words in order to come to the result that he wants, which is you have no choice. You have to do what you're told because you made that covenant back when you were eight years old, when you got baptized. Yeah. And... When the missionaries came into my home and taught me, and when the missionaries went into your home, RFM, and taught you, I would guess that the missionaries framed it as though you have agency, you have the ability to choose, you can choose good, you can choose evil, um, but that you have to be allowed to choose. That's what the plan of salvation was. If the missionaries would have came into my home and taught me what Bednar just said, Mm-hmm. I would have been like, oh my goodness, something's not right. You're telling me I get to join your church. That's the one choice I get to make, join or not join. But the moment I join, you're telling me that I am obligated uh, with serious spiritual consequences if I don't choose the right thing 100% of the time. And the only option I have is to do all the things you guys say, go to all the places you tell me to go, serve in all the callings you tell me to serve, pay all the things I'm supposed to pay, show up for all the things I'm supposed to show up for, be quiet when I'm supposed to be quiet, stay away from the sources. Yeah. If nobody tells you that. So Bednar and the rest of the church, do me a favor, put this in the first discussion. If you really believe this, if you really believe what Elder Bednar just taught, put it in discussion number one, where every potential investigator is clearly taught that the moment they enter the waters of baptism, their agency is gone like that yeah no i I hear what you're saying and what i what i'm seeing more and more is in this instance as well as in other instances and some of which you have uh later on in the show bill but there seems to be a rhetoric that is alive and afoot in the lds church now 
restricting people's agency who are members of the church and trying to coerce them even beyond the coercion that has existed before to do what they're supposed to do. And what this bespeaks to me is behind the scenes, what they're responding to by using this kind of rhetoric is the fact that more and more members of the church, more perhaps than ever before, are not doing what the leaders believe they should be doing. So their response to it is not to reason with people or to try and persuade them. It's simply to say, you don't have any choice. You have to do what we tell you to do. Yeah. I don't think that's a good strategy. No, no, it, it absolutely isn't. And it speaks to some sort of insecurity that the leadership has about the current state of affairs in the church. Um, let me finish this list that I've got. So I had the Bednar one. Uh, my next one, having a sustaining vote, but in which a no vote means nothing, right? So you go to general conference and we give a sustaining vote to the leaders and we think we're voting. I was taught I was voting. If everybody votes no or if 51% vote no, something else has to happen. But you can see in the way this plays out that that's not real. Anybody who votes no, you go talk to your bishop, you go talk to your stake president. We're really not concerned with what percentage of people are voting no. It it doesn't work the way you thought it works. Um, it is wrong to criticize leaders of the church, even if the criticism is true. Stay away from unauthorized or unapproved sources. That's a thought-stopping technique. Trust oh, us. There's a video about that. Sorry, just thought I'd throw it out there because I saw it just before the show. Remember the video about staying away from unapproved sources? Uh, was this the Nelson thing that you sent me? Yeah, that's President Nelson to you, pal. Yeah, let me, I think, let me, give me a second. I thought I had it. See if I do. Whoops. Yeah. This That's apparently 11. was from pa- the past May. Right now, oh, yeah, here it is it August is. 3rd, 2022. This is from the past May when he was addressing the youth. And there's a number of times when church leaders will say this, but this is the president of the church making it very, very clear that he doesn't want the youth or the members of the church to, to pollute their, their testimonies, testimonies by listening to the philosophies of non-believers. Okay, here it is. I plead with you to take charge of your testimony, work for it, own it, care for it, nurture it so that it will grow. Feed it truth. Don't pollute it with the false philosophies of unbelieving men and women. And then wonder why your testimony is waning. Engage in daily, earnest, humble prayer. Nourish yourself in the words of ancient and modern prophets. Ask the Lord to teach you how to hear him better. Spend more time in the temple and in family history work. As you make your testimony your highest priority, watch for miracles to happen in your life. Yep. Those are all thought stopping techniques. Those are all busy work to keep you from thinking too much or having time to read good books that have solid historical information in them. Uh, doing family history work. Once you don't believe in that, you recognize it's just a complete waste of time uh, to know who my 16th great grandfather was and all of his kids and where they grew up and where they were born. It's just a waste of time, but it, it gets you to stop thinking about the things that would possibly change your mind. Um, anyway, how many techniques were, were all fit in that one video and, and like unironically, you know, I, 
I feel like that could have been a video made by somebody like for the ex-Mormon Reddit or something to to specifically pick out thought-stopping techniques. You know what I mean? But the church did this one, right? Yeah. The church made this yeah. one. It's wild. Right. And this is one of the problems that the church has now is that the cat is out of the bag and it's mean, it's nasty, and it hates everything to do with Christmas. And by the cat, I mean this information about the church is now available. The church has had its day of covering it up, locking it in safes and ripping it out of letter books. Okay. So now it's available. It's out there. So what do they do? Well, they can't seem to get out of their playbook. The playbook from the beginning has been to hide things. And so now what they want to do is to direct members to not access this information that is generally available, mostly through the Internet and social media. So once again, they go back to the playbook. The cat's out of the bag, but don't look at that cat over there. Just stay here with the approved sources and everything will be fine. And you will nourish your testimony and you will never have to worry about losing it. Yeah. Um, let's see here. So this one here is want happiness, align your will with God. Sister Oscar said, um, again, anytime the church says align your will with God, it doesn't say, it doesn't mean by that, go read the new Testament, read it with a clean lens, figure out who Jesus was and go be like him. It is listen to prophets, seers, and revelators, listen to the commandments of the church and do exactly what we tell you to do. Um, the next one here, let me... Hey, Bill, can I ask you a question? By the way, this is a rhetorical question, but what happens when you do align your will with God, Sister Oscarson, but you don't become happy? Yeah, how many how many people in Utah are members of the church on antidepressants because they're doing the best they can, but they recognize that they're covenant breakers because on some level, what Elder Bednar said does register. Every yeah. Mormon goes, I've got a million things to do and I can't do them all and I feel like a failure. And so they're not happy and they're taking drugs to solve the problem. Um, suicide is a major issue in Utah. Um, they pretend like if you just live the gospel, you end up happy. But two plus two in this situation doesn't equal four. Right. And I think the headline, want happiness, align yourself with the gospel or with whatever that headline said. That is the main, I think, the primary reason for so many antidepressants in Utah, because people are doing what they are told to do. To the best of their ability, they are promised they will be happy, and they're not. Yeah. I'm not saying everybody. Fatigue. I'm not yeah. saying everybody. I was very happy doing everything I was supposed to do as a Mormon for about the first five or six years. Yeah. It went great but for a little while, didn't it? It wears off. It does. It gets heavy. I remember leaving the church. My excommunication, people go, man, that had to have been a hard evening. I said, no. Honestly, I was thrilled that evening. I got to say my piece. I got to walk away. I knew what the outcome was going to be a week later. Um, I've never felt so good and light and content since that evening. Well, I think it was a hard evening for somebody, but not you. No, no, it, it was a few guys in a room that maybe had a hard time. My Adderall the, kept me doing just fine. It was your state presidency and your high council. And I continue to maintain until this day that it is because of you, Mr. Real, that the change in the handbook was made that, you don't have to have the high council. Have a high council. Person. No more. No, no. Just yeah. those three guys. They'll take care of it. Um, I want to bring up this question real quick um, from Britt. How do you three now explain when someone's life was a mess before Mormonism and they are now happier? Atheists must explain that just like believers have to explain flourishing heretics. I don't know if we have to, but. Um, 
Oh, I was. I think Bill. I think Bill can uh, address this because his life actually patterns this better, maybe than mine. Because yeah. you know, I wasn't dealing drugs in high school. Yeah. And Bill has addressed this before. I think a lot of us do. I think. I mean, and even on Mormon stories, like John will talk about all the time that there are people, like some people whose lives become better that need the structure. But yeah, and I did. Ahead, it, was, it was a positive thing for me to have structure. I became happier after I joined Mormonism. In fact, there are a few things like wait, to, wait till you leave. There, it really there gets few, good. <laughs> there are a few things that make me and a lot of people happier than believing that you have found the only true and living church upon the face of the earth, which thereby means that you've got the inside scoop and you can also judge other people who don't have it and are too stupid to realize the truth yeah. of what it is that you've accepted. Yeah. But uh, as far as what Brit, Brittany yeah, asks, yeah, it's fine. Anybody who is has a messed up life or is happier after joining Mormonism, God bless you. I'm not saying yeah. that doesn't happen. And I know it happened to me. It did not persist. I think it happened to you, Bill. It did not persist. Yeah. And if it persists for somebody, wonderful. You've got it made. It's a different path than mine. So that's how I would respond to that. Yeah. I would simply say that when I left, I was free to trust my own inner tuition. And I've found that my own inner tuition is much better than the intuition that Mormonism was handing me. So there was always conflict between what I thought inside was the right thing to do and what Mormonism was telling me was the right thing to do. Once I was completely away from it, I was completely free to trust my intuition. And that has worked out by and far better, number one. Number two is there really is a burden when you feel like you have to do everything. You have to check all the boxes to get back to the celestial kingdom and live with God again and live with your family again. But not only you, you have to make sure that your spouse uh, checks all the boxes. You have to make sure your kids check all the boxes. You have to make sure that everybody you serve in callings checks all the boxes. It's so heavy that the very next morning after being uh, going through the disciplinary court, I just remember waking up and going like, oh man, I, I feel great. Like it's, I feel lighter. And from that day forward, again, some people's lives are bad. Some people's lives are good. Some people's lives are uh, they do the right thing and bad things happen and vice versa. Um, but the reality is that for most people, my experience is most people who leave, they tend to feel lighter, more content, and have more happiness in their life. And flipping this into the subject of tonight's podcast about the um, the grooming for compliance, although yeah. I don't think we've left it at all. No. Going back to these very famous scripture stories that end up being talked about kind of a lot in the church. When you talk about all the scriptures that we have and all the standard works, we spend 95% of the time talking about 5% of the scriptures. And some of those stories is first off, Adam being told to sacrifice the sheep or the lamb or whatever it is, right? And the angel tells him to do it. And he says, why? And the angel says, hey, I'm just telling you to do it, right? I'm not going to tell you why. And then after he sacrifices the sheep, he finds out it's in similitude of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So that story is talked about a lot to say. Do something that you're told to do, even if you don't understand why you should do it. But then it gets one upped in first Nephi, where now Nephi kills Laban. And Nephi is, does not seem to be presented as a homicidal maniac. He actually does not want to do this. He resists it three times, even though God, through the Holy Ghost, is telling him over and over, you've got to kill this guy. So this is a step beyond just not understanding what it is that you're being told to do. This is having the deepest moral repugnance 
about doing what it is that God is telling you to do. And yet you do it anyway. And that's supposed to be the moral of the story. So Mormons end up being taught through the repetition of these stories that what they need to do is obey God, which means what the representatives of God, i.e. the church leaders, tell them to do regardless of whether it is completely contrary and repugnant to their own sense of moral agency, Elder Bednar. We are beat up into compliance so bad that we voluntarily clean the bathrooms for free of a multi-hundred billion dollar organization. And count ourselves blessed for being able to do so. Right. Yeah. Show up on a Saturday, clean the shitter. Uh, meanwhile, this thing has so much money, it could hire 25 janitors per building and not really be hurting at all. Right. I. This is another tweet as I was going through everything today and I thought it might come up. Um, this was me asking somebody if there was ever anything a prophet could say or do that would cause them to question if they were really speaking for Christ. Um, so uh, this, this is their response. Initially, my thought was yes, like there would be things. But honestly, I think my real response would be no. It is very difficult for me to consider the LDS church not being the living church of Christ to usher in the second coming. So um and that's actually not the one that I thought I had found. So I'm kind of bummed out that I lucky that person for being born into the right church though. Man, right. Lucky but there. there's another one where like I, I push but further if, and they but said, if I'm understanding you, Maven, I'm sorry. I just want to make sure I'm catching up with you because this is remarkable that you actually have a faithful member of the church admitting that there is nothing that a leader of the church or the prophet of the church could do or say that would lead them to think that the church is not Christ's church. Right. Because they self-admit that their belief is so good for them. Their comfortable belief is so comfortable that they don't want to let it go. Right. And I think that a lot of members, actually, this is where they're coming from. But I think what's remarkable about this is that you got one to actually say it. He went further to say even more, which is why I wish I, I had like the proof of it, I guess. But because um, he even said, like, I, I can think of things that because I asked if there was anything that he would not do that if the prophet said to do, he wouldn't do like because of his conscience. And, and he said, uh, like, he went on further to say, like, you know, polygamy would be hard or like murder. But again, that's where you bring back like Nephi and the head of Laban and the, the Lafferty brothers. I think I mentioned this tweet in that episode and I didn't have it then either. And I, maybe I never did save it, but anyway, it's the same guy from this one that said that. So he's basically saying like, yeah, I mean, it would be really hard to murder somebody if the prophet told me to, but. But we have Abraham and Isaac, we've got Nephi right? and Laban and, and, and we've got the son. So that, that that's something that applies to, I think to all of Christianity too, is that this story being ideal or loving that, that God would kill Jesus for our sins. Yeah. And we got the other side of the coin, which is in section 132. Emma is told that she has to be uh, sought out and asked about Joseph entering into polygamy. But if she says no, if she's not compliant, she will be destroyed. So we have the people who go uh, extreme and are blessed for it in ways that you and I in real time would go like, dude, if, if you think you should kill your kid, maybe you should check yourself into a, a, a mental facility and get yourself checked out. Um, and then the other side of it is somebody who goes like, this is atrocious. I'm not going to participate. And God is on the other side going, well, that's fine, but you'll be destroyed. But that's, that's not really, a, that's not really good choices, right? Like this. And that's what we Mormons grow up with. 
is we grow up with these stories and these stories are used to teach us to be compliant and to fear not being compliant. Um, let me just share one other one. So you mentioned stay on the covenant path, that that equals obedience is the first law of heaven. Mm. Uh, Robert D. Hale said at times, members may participate in selective obedience, claiming to love God and honor God. In other words, be a cafeteria Mormon while picking and choosing which of his commandments and teachings and the teachings and counsel of his prophets, we will fully follow. I just want to note, all Mormons are cafeteria Mormons, including the modern leaders of the church who on any whim on any day can disavow the past leaders who taught things because they don't want to follow it anymore. Right. If you go back to when we had Charlie Harrell on the show about his book, this is my doctrine to show that every single prominent doctrine and teaching of the LDS church has changed over the course of time since its inception. This mandates the fact that every member has to be a cafeteria Mormon because you cannot believe everything that the leaders have said without holding inconsistent views. Yeah. Um, another last one here, and then we'll go to this one. The last one here is you will lose your eternal family for eternity. If you don't comply. Um, we all kind of know, we kind of all understand that the big thing that Mormonism holds over our head is that we want to be with the people we love forever and they've promised us we can do it if we check all the boxes and if they check all the boxes. And the reality is on the other side, if we if we think it through, every one of us, even if we stayed in the church, would not be with all the people we love because not all the people we love are completely compliant. Um, and so what happens is the church teaches this grand idea that families can be together forever, but they might as well come in on the first discussion and just promise me that my family won't be together forever because not everybody's going to do everything the church says to do. Hmm. Um, and then this last one here is this idea that, you know, RFM, you and I grew up, um, most of our audience is going to recognize we grew up with Mormonism softly, sort of, maybe a little firmly saying that every male needs to go on a mission, but it wasn't as abrasive as what we're now seeing right here in the modern moment. Um, what we end up with is I'll, I'll play this video first and let me actually do this. Right. And let me go ahead and say what was a very famous saying by Spencer Kimball, who was the president of the church when I joined. And then the listeners can compare it with what this individual from the first, uh, was it the state presidency said, I know this has become a bit famous because it's made the rounds, but this is also very much along the lines of what elder Bednar said as well about really having agency, which is you don't, you don't have a choice. Um, so what it was that President Kimball said was every worthy young man should serve a mission. And if he's not worthy, he needs to get himself worthy. So that's over 40 years ago, right? But it seems that this is upping things even more than that to me. Yeah. So here it is. Let me unmute that and uh, let's play it. A little tangent here real quick. We were recently as a family having a discussion uh, about missionary work. One of my daughters was at school. She was talking with her friends about President Nelson's recent call for young men to serve missions. And the friends there at the lunch table were debating, do young men have to go or is it a choice? Now, young men, I hope you'll think about this carefully because there's an important doctrine here. Do you have a choice whether to serve a mission? I'm going to tell you why you don't. Now, that might rub you the wrong way because we're so big into liberty and agency and 
and we do believe we're a free democratic kind of people, right? But here's why you don't have the choice anymore. It's because when you were baptized, you signed on to the Lord's plan, which is giving up free agency and accepting moral agency. The difference being that we give up thinking that we know for ourselves what is best in our lives, and we trust the Lord to give us the direction that is best for us in our lives. And so, young man, if that sounds like foreign doctrine to you, I hope you'll reconsider the importance of that baptismal and sacramental covenant, where every week we come to church and we say, I'm giving up what I think is best, and I trust the Lord to guide and direct me in my life. And his will becomes paramount. And no longer is what we want the most important thing in our lives. We recognize that what the Lord can give us is much greater than anything we could choose for ourselves. I will suggest, I will suggest that, that that kind of a statement leads many members of the church to go ahead and do what the church wants them to do. And I'm one of them, by the way. And then 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, after they've made a lifetime out of choosing what the church wants them to do instead of what I think is best for me, it can lead to some regret at the far end of that. Am, am I crazy for thinking that what Elder Bednar taught seems to be very much connected to what I just heard from that member of the stake presidency? And then you combine it with this thing, which also came out this week. Uh, I prefer not to give my name, but I wanted to make you aware that today is a fifth Sunday lesson. Every bishop, so this person seems to me as if they're in a state calling because they're aware of what's happening in multiple wards. Um, as a fifth Sunday lesson, every bishop was required to give a lesson on how no young man has a choice to serve a mission. It is a requirement. We go to a YSA ward where the bishop presented this exact information and told everyone this is what he was told to teach. It seems as though we're at a moment where the church, out of uh, maybe being desperate, is trying to make everyone feel a, a higher degree of shame and pressure to do this mission thing. Um, I, I have some fears that it's going to backfire on them, but they're doing it nonetheless. Yeah, I think it's been said already quite a few times that this is Satan's plan. But the other thing is, is that when you get to this point where you're, they're showing their desperation, I think, by going to this extreme. And what that desperation tells me is that behind the scenes, they're having all sorts of trouble with guys not going on missions. And I think that from the church's point of view, what they cannot afford to have happen is to have so many guys, young men, not going on missions that it becomes acceptable to not go on a mission. And I think they're at that tipping point and maybe starting to get past it now. And that's why they're doubling down and becoming so desperate and saying, you don't even have a choice anymore. Instead of, I mean, what about just talking about all the great things you learn on your mission? Why, why would that be a bad thing? And you get closer to the Lord, you get to preach the gospel, you get to learn stuff, you get to meet people, learn a different language if you go foreign. There's so many positive things, legitimate positive things that you could say to try and encourage people to go on a mission. Other than you don't have a choice because you got baptized when you were eight. Yeah. I don't, I don't have the image um, in separate by itself, but I got it from our outline. Um, yeah. We were talking about this quote a couple of days ago in a phone call. 
this is Harold B. Lee. This is the October 1970. By the way, uh, you can't find that talk. That talk, uh, the church only goes, I think, what'd you say, RFM, 1971? Yes. Yeah. So anything before 71 isn't stored anymore in the church. Anybody who spoke 1970 or earlier, their messages must just not be as important because the true and living church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in the restoration and these the last days has chosen from 1970 before to just keep those things obscured. But Harold B. Lee says, now uh, I'll get just to the main part. You may not like what comes from the authority of the church. It may contradict your political views. It may contradict your social views. It may interfere with some of your social life. But if you listen to these things as if from the mouth of the Lord himself with patience and faith, the promise is that the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. When you tell people that, that it will contradict your political views, uh, it may contradict your social view, views, it may interfere with, your, interfere with your social life, you're essentially saying it doesn't matter what your your inner gut tells you, it doesn't matter what the repercussions are for you personally, damn it, do what the hell we say. Yes, and by the way, I just while you were reading that, I went back and double-checked on the church website. That is correct. They only have general conference back to 1971. They don't have anything before that. I wonder why, why they wouldn't want us to know the rest of that stuff. I have no idea. I think it's because they don't have enough money to be able to pile in that information onto their church website. Hmm. Huh. Maybe that's it. That's why I had to go to a separate website in order to do the research on the usage of the phrase, obedience is the first law of heaven on a different website than the churches. Yeah. Yep. And then the last thing I wanted to note um, before we kind of all give up or give our wrapping up thoughts is this idea that my last segment or my last section is that leadership teaches each other to be compliant. Hubie Brown, thank goodness, in his personal writings informed us of what every apostle agrees to, the apostolic charge. That is what he's saying is that when a person gets called into the quorum of the 12, they are given this charge and they agree to it. So from that point forward, Every time you see those top 15 men act, um, as they come out of council, as they make decisions, as they put um, Elder Christofferson in front of the television after the November policy in 2015, this charge stands um, at the forefront of how these men choose to interact with the public and the image they choose to portray. It is, quote, always be willing to subjugate his own thoughts and accept the majority opinion, not only to vote for it. In other words, you have to vote for the majority opinion. We'll take a vote. Those eight voted for it. Those four voted against it. That's the decision, folks. Let's vote again. Everybody votes in the affirmative. Totally get it. Um, but also to act as though it were his own original opinion after it has been approved by the majority of the Council of the Twelve and the First Presidency. In other words, you do not have the right to walk out of these councils and share a, a different opinion or to say that you thought differently on the topic. Your only thing you are allowed to do because you agreed to it at the very beginning is that you have agreed that you will uh, that whatever the majority of folks in that room want to do, you will walk out of that room as and having voted for it yourself eventually and will treat it as though you were always for it to begin with. That is correct, sir. All right. And then the just last. System, the entire system is rigged. The entire system is rigged. 
the nothing uh what's the line from uh uh the game whose line is it anyway i think it is is it the the it's all made up and the points don't matter yeah the questions are made up and the points don't matter it, that's that's exactly what it is it's excuse my language it's a fucking game and you're all being played you're all being played and every believing member of the church is being played and they don't even know it and finally on the outside we get it you know we see these things and they all add up and we understand what's going on we can put we can now see the forest from the trees. Yeah, or it's like the line from that song by the Tin Man in The Wiz. I can't win, I can't get even, and I can't get out of the game. <laughs> no, you're stuck. Uh, and no wonder you feel better when you do. When you when you just put the Monopoly board game away and say, I'm just not going to believe in Star Wars anymore as reality, uh, everything gets easier. Uh, no wonder it does. I'm not taking depression meds and nothing against for those who do, but I have talked to numerous people who felt burdened in the church who were taking uh, antidepressant medicine. And when they left Mormonism, their depression magically vanished. Mm. That is a miracle. Maven, I think you were kind of hinting to some of that feeling of being burdened in the church and now not yeah. feeling that burden. And it wasn't something I was aware of. So I, I, this was something that someone else like on Twitter, I guess, accused me of, of like uh, being unhappy in the church. And I, I told him I, I did. That's not why I left, because I didn't realize that I like how unhappy I was. That was just a, a complete unexpected benefit to leaving. I left because I didn't believe in God anymore. Um, and so the church would naturally fall along with that. But it was a, a burden I just had had my whole life. So I wasn't able to be aware that it was there until it was gone. And I felt lighter. And I know you know, they, they talk about like a baseline kind of happiness. I think Bill, I, I, there's a word for it and you might know better than I do, but basically whatever happens in your life, good or bad, you, you tend to come back to the same like baseline. Um, I think that's what the research says. And I honestly, in, in the I, almost three years now, it's been since I have left, I really feel like my baseline is higher. Like that has changed so that even my, yeah. like my, my normal days, even my worst days, I, I still feel better off than on some of my best days uh, as a believing member. So, yeah. yeah. Mormonism only cares about two things. One is that people stay in so it can continue to get money. And the second is that you perpetuate the belief system by passing it on to your children and your family and friends so that they can pay money. And, and once you understand those two things and you recognize everything is designed to get you to be compliant so that those two things happen. Yeah. On a slightly more important note, it looks like one of our listeners whose name I'm not is Trevor. Yeah, it was a scarecrow. It wasn't the Tin Man. Bravo, Trevor. Good job. All right. Any final thoughts from you guys? And we'll take a few phone calls. I think we should take a few phone calls. What do you think, Maven? Do you have any final thoughts? I'm good. Ready for phone calls. Perfect. Let me X out. Yeah, all right. yep, we've got, we do. We have a few on there. So let me... Uh, by the way, you Trevor, you should over? not criticize Radio Free Mormon, even when the criticism is true. Let me make sure. Um, I want to uh, give me a second. I just want to make sure that we have this. So, um, what is it you're looking for, Bill? No, 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 no. I just want to make sure I don't put people's numbers up on the screen like I've done before. So, I'm just trying to make sure I do it right. So, let's do with this. I think we've got Cynthia on the line. Cynthia, are you there? Oh, give me a second, Cynthia. I'm going to put you to the to our device here that'll put you on the air. There. Can you hear me now? 
I can. Can you hear me? You guys hear her too. Great. Yep. You're on yeah. the show, my friend. What are your thoughts? I just wanted to say that, um, first of all, the, the LDS church um, did severe damage, not only to myself, but to my five daughters. And that all that's all aside. But um, I would just like to tell young women in the church today, when they give up their careers and compensation, uh, never in a million years that I think 30 years later, uh, I would be trying to survive on the minimum Social Security of $400 a month or at the very best, half of what my ex-husband gets. And I just, um, you know, no, there's not, nothing in that equation or nobody ever mentions anything like that, that, uh, you know, you'll be starving to death when you're an old lady if it doesn't work out for you. Um, to live the Mormon dream. So um, anyway, it's just it was it, it was a slap across the face because I gave my whole body, I gave my whole life. There was no habit, and I just um, I think young women should know that what's coming down the pike for them. Yeah, yeah. I want to. Yeah. Please, oh, I just wanted to share. This was a comment earlier. Um, by one of our listeners that I think kind of goes along with it. Um, she says she broke up with two really nice guys because they weren't going to serve missions. And so she married an RM who abused her for 40 years. Um, and I think there's just a lot of ways that we, that, yeah, we're not told what's coming down the pipeline. Um, and, and we end up live, like getting left high and dry. So, yeah, thank you for sharing. Yeah. Cynthia, thank you so much. And the other thing that I had mentioned to Bill, I think I was talking with you on the phone this morning, and this idea occurred to me even as we were speaking. Yeah, I snuck even into the sentence. But, you know, I understand that young women are still taught today that they need to marry a return missionary. Is there any truth to that, Maven, that you know of? That, sorry, say it again. That young women in the church today still are taught to, that they should marry a return missionary. I don't know. I mean... I'm not a young woman anymore. <laughs> so, I'm going to guess that hasn't changed, okay? And if it has, yeah, somebody I'm, can I'm let me know. Not. I'm guessing that's because that's part of the, the the peer pressure, you know? And I bet we'll hear more of it. Can I can I just say something about the whole missionary thing and like just how yeah. desperate that they are now to get yeah. missionaries? I, I kind of want to laugh at that because, I mean, for the longest, longest time, they did not want us sisters going, you know? I, I don't know. I just I just feel like there's a little bit of, come up and that they're so yeah. desperate for missionaries now but uh, you know but we weren't good enough for them like as, as women for a long long time and it was just like well if you if you don't get married or you know if you're still an old maid or you know at 21 then i guess i guess <laughs> let you you know and then now they've lowered it to 19 so it's easier still but they they still want to give them that one year that 18 years old that they can get married you know and but you're still equal mission. yeah it's just i i don't know i just kind of like yeah how's that medicine uh, you? you know well, the, anyway the thing, it, the thing that it occurred to me as i was talking with bill was that if you you see i'm not in the young women's classes where they're being taught this but i sure as heck was an, on a mission and i know that we're talking as we're time's getting closer to going home and we've got the what is it the missionary smile and the angel shaps you know, all these little colloquialisms for garments, right? Mm -hmm. Which the women at BYU or wherever it is we're going after we get off our mission are going to be able to see to know that we are the correct ones. 
that have served a mission, that we are the REMs and we are the ones that they have been waiting for. What this ends up being in a strange way is once again, awarding women to men in exchange for the men's obedience and sacrifice in going on a mission. The women are the prize to the men who are faithful. Mm, I never, yeah. I never thought of it that way. I didn't either until this morning. Yeah. 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 Women are objectified, huh? Yeah. I mean, in reality, but then there's also, I'm, I'm sure you guys have heard the, um, you know, the, the idea that the, the more faithful you are as a missionary, the hotter your wife will be. So, you know, oh, really? Yeah. You, you haven't heard that. I'm, I'm sure we'll get people in the comments. It's something Would this that be a bad time to say I should have been more yeah. faithful. <laughs> All right. Like, if anything goes wrong, like it's because you did something wrong. So, you know, a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure for anything that doesn't go the way it's supposed to go. Um, the next caller is, I think, Alyssa, maybe. Uh, Is that the name, Alyssa? It's Alyssa. Alyssa. Alyssa, you're on Mormonism Live. Hi. Hi. Thank you for letting me call in. Um, this has been a real hard, episode for me to listen to not just because of how women are treated in the church just because of my personal experiences um both of my parents were converts and they were very very devoted to the church still are um very very intent on making sure that each of their three daughters faithfully attended and really kind of sunk into the church and absorbed everything and there's this kind I don't know if this is just maybe in our house but there's this underlying thing that that, that we don't talk about in the church is that when the teaching people to comply doesn't work that it becomes coercion and sometimes it becomes physical coercion Mm. when my sister was 15 she absolutely I'm not going to church anymore and there were a lot of, lots of shouting, lots of violence. Um, my dad once dragged her down the hallway by her hair to try and force her to go to church. Mm-hmm. And, you know, cut, cut a couple of years later, same thing with me. I'm like, I, I don't want to go. And eventually it became, I was so scared of, getting hit that it was easier to go to church and pretend that I was happy there. Yeah. Mm. And then a couple years later, I'm at BYU. Um, and just this, 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 that scene sort of compliance was so ingrained in me. Um, I had just come home from work. It was like a Saturday night. There was some kind of steak dance. I had a migraine. And my roommates were okay. Just, yeah, just go to sleep. We'll be gone. We'll come back later. We'll check on you. One of the guys in the nearby apartment came over and would not leave unless I went with him to the dance. And, you know, it's just, I don't know if you guys know about migraines, but when you have a really bad migraine, your your mental processes are a little bit weakened and discombobulated. And I'm at this dance and I'm miserable. It's loud music. It's flashing lights. Mm-hmm. And my roommate came up to me. She's like, I'm taking you home. You should not be here. And then the man, the guy who took me got really mad and was yelling. Like I had personally insulted him by feeling too sick to stay at the dance. Mm. 
that he made all this effort to get me there. And now I was going home and I wasn't leaving with him like a good date should. So that was just, I, this has been a hard episode, but it's been a good episode. Just to, mm. just to have, you know, Maven's voice and the voices in the chat. Yeah. You know, talk about these things. Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for calling. Thank you. Man, like again, some of this is real. It plays out. The need to be compliant plays out in ways that for, you know, for most of mine, it wasn't too serious of trauma. For some folks, it really is like you, um, you trust the priesthood. So you, you end up being sexually assaulted because you take a man back to your room and you assume he's good rather than how the world would have handled it by vetting somebody and getting to know someone first. You trust the person because they have priesthood. You can see how boundaries get um, unhealthy boundaries get seen as good boundaries when they're not. You see how people have their resolve worn down so that they end up just giving in to the things they're asked to do. Um, Mormonism, as we're pointing out, grooms compliance. The The next call, I don't have a name here. Let's um, call her. What's the name? Jana. Jana, you're our second to last call. What's on your mind tonight? You're on Mormonism Live. So um, I think like a lot of the women that have called in today, this was one of the episodes that was really kind of triggering and touching at the same time. Um, so two thoughts and one really fresh that just happened to me this week. Um, I finished my master's thesis, uh, at age 36 with four kids. I had my fourth baby during the pandemic and we also moved, um, and I had my faith crisis. So all those things happen at the same time. And, um, when I finished it, and I submitted it, I expected the next day to feel really happy and proud, but I actually felt really angry and frustrated and I couldn't put my finger on why. And it wasn't until the evening that I realized it was because I realized I had had so much time and opportunities stolen from me mm. because I made decisions based on my true belief in the church. And if I hadn't been in the church, what else could I have done? How much could I have accomplished, you know, considering what I've been able to do with all these things stacked against me. And so I just kind of felt like, yes, it's amazing that I managed to do it, but you know what, if I had been freer, it wouldn't have been this challenging. And it was really because of the church. I felt like that had been stolen from me. Um, and I guess the second thing that I just wanted to add was um, I ended up um, eloping with my husband, which is a choice I've never, ever regretted. But I did it because when um, my husband proposed to me, he was not an RM. And my family was not happy about him. Um, and my dad actually gave me a blessing where he said that the Lord wanted me to go on a mission and that if I didn't, that there were people that wouldn't accept the gospel simply because I hadn't been their missionary. So I struggled with that because I really believed my dad 
was closer to God than me. And ultimately, you know, like I said, I made the decision to marry my husband and I'm very happy about that. It was one of the few that I did on my own without doing it because the church told me to. But again, my life didn't have to be that hard. I didn't have to struggle with relationships with my family or friends or be isolated for the early years of my marriage because no one supported me. So I'm just adding to what you said that like when we go against the church and when we fight for our free agency, our real free agency, we, we can be successful, but it's so much harder. It's so much harder and it doesn't have to be. So anyway, I'll let you guys, Go ahead and respond to that. And thank, thank you. you so much for doing this tonight. It, I think you really freed a lot of people. Before you go, I just want to give you a really hearty congratulations because, I mean, not only did you do all that yourself, but also, it, it, you know, in the context of Mormonism with friends and family, a lot of times they don't see that as much of a, an accomplishment for a woman because it's, again, it's kind of extra. And so I don't know if um, mm -hmm. if your family and if your friends aren't, really like fully excited for you. I, I want to say that I'm excited for you and, and congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Kudos Thank you so you. much. Yeah. Awesome. And I understand that the anger, I feel like I, I have said this before, but it's my biggest pain point as well with, with leaving the church and realizing how much time was wasted. And I, I think it's true for a lot of women. That's the one, that's the biggest thing. The number one thing is that what if, um, when we've, you, when we realized we've given so much of ourselves. Um, so, yeah. And I, I, I gave so much for a Thank husband you. that I never even had. <laughs> so it's one thing if you actually have one, you know, and you have children um, to give up stuff for, but I, I never had anything, you know, and I, I was still making decisions for that man. Yeah. It's crazy. I have a, I have a friend. She's brilliant super smart she tells a story about how she as a as a person growing up she wanted to be a doctor and she would have been no ifs ands or buts um she just was determined and she's a determined kind of person and uh, her her education her grades were always good but as she went through young women's it was ingrained in her that all she was going to really be good for was to be a mom and to raise a family and so she did go to college but she ended up changing her coursework to be things that would be more suitable to raising children. And to this day, she she's carrying this same kind of story where her life should have been something different than it was. And, and she has a good life, but she resents the fact that she didn't chase her dreams and that this religion convinced her not to. And uh, again, talking about taking agency away from people. Uh, I I'm really, I think we lost Bill. Mm. Like for, it's good for what we do to have the church doing things. I don't know what just happened. It's good for what we do to have the church doing things. Um, it makes for us to be able to easily create episodes and to talk about it. But on the other side of that is the fact that I'm really scared of what, if Bednar teaches this and this thing gets uh, proliferate, proliferated throughout the church, that's not going to be good for people. That's going to be a problem, right? Yes, for those few who remain. Yeah, it, correct. I mean, yes, it will help people wake up, but it will also add trauma to people who stay and feel the shame and guilt and keep doing the things they're supposed to do. 
Yeah. And what I hear with all these stories that have been from the listeners and from other people is just instance after instance, after example, after example of ways in which the church takes away from its members, the ability to make their own decisions. Yeah. Yeah. You don't get to make your own decisions. And and my point is tell that to people on the first discussion because they deserve an honest presentation of what they're about to sign up for. Um, but we don't do that. We trick them. We trick people into joining. So few people are even accepting the message anyway, and they only accept the whitewashed, simplified, half-hidden message that presents Mormonism in its absolute best light. I wonder what would happen if they told the truth. I wonder how many people would join if we told the truth. Um, our final call for the night, I, I don't know the name here. I'll have to ask it. Uh, caller, what's the what's the name? Guy McDude, long-time listener, first-time caller. Guy McDude, uh, you are on Mormonism Live. What's your thoughts tonight? I'm just kind of rolling over in my head. It's been, uh, after having left the church, you know, three or four years back, every once in a while I'll, I'll come across something that just irritates me and angers me, and this is one of those episodes where, where I just had to call in and share my thoughts of uh, how Bednar says that we don't have a choice after baptism and just the coercion that goes into to getting a child that doesn't have the ability to consent to be baptized at the age of eight and then gets his life stolen from him, um, being required to go on a mission, required to pay tithing um, without giving the information that he needs to, to make that decision at eight years old. And um, just, just calling him, I guess, out of, out of frustration that there's not some type of protection that it's the, the churches that are protected um, when this kind of damage is being done. So that's yeah. really all I had to share. Yeah. Thank you, my friend. Agreed. And I will mention just as a lawyer, which I happen to be in one of my alternate egos is that children of the age of eight do not have the capacity to enter into a legally binding contract and there's a our treats them like that. they do yeah it's insane yeah. yeah there's a reason for that and in fact usually it's 18 before a person can there, there's a few exceptions to that maybe 16 if it's an emancipation case but you're not going to find any case i don't think anywhere in the united states at least where a kid who's eight has the ability to enter into a legally binding contract in other words a contract that's binding on that person that eight-year-old and is going to be held to whatever promise they made at that time. You're making a great point, RFM. If you don't tell people in the discussions when you are teaching an investigator, if you don't tell the seven-year-old in his preparation for being baptized, it's kind of a bait and switch when you take this kid and now tell him for the rest of his life that when he made that decision on, on birthday number eight, that he's now obligated to do all these things for the rest of his life. That that feels kind of like you like you just got screwed and didn't even know it until time came to to pay the piper. But I, I think suggest- that it's, that even if you did know, you would do it anyway. You wouldn't or know. I think it, I would have. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. Because I, I did everything. Yeah. So because you're seven years old, and you can't comprehend what the hell's yeah. going on. It's interesting that the church thinks that eight is the age of accountability where where it is okay to baptize because children at that point know right from wrong, which because they think, won't believe it when they're eleven. That's right. that's why. <laughs> also, it's a time where it's still 
it's it's like a prime time right before they're they're not getting into like their preteens where they're they're starting to be they're still very much um dependent on and looking for parental and community support and love so they're yeah. very much primed to be obedient anyway at that age and i think it's almost about as late as you can get before they'll start to want to be individualistic so you you still get them when they care enough to conform that's that yeah. age and they still believe in santa claus right <laughs> yeah tooth fairy santa claus all that is is real to them and uh yet somehow they're supposed to know for sure that the gospel of jesus christ as restored through joseph smith is true can i give my impression on this argument that is now cropping up with elder bednar and this first counselor in the state presidency and now the bishops throughout the church on the fifth sunday yeah i really think that it's kind of a non sequitur to say that because you got baptized you have no choice about going on a mission which makes me think that that really is not the argument that's being made. In other words, they didn't go to the drawing board and said, okay, you've been baptized, which means you're going to do this, which means you're going to go on a mission and now you don't have a choice. I think it's the reverse. I think that what they're doing is they're saying, you don't have an, a choice anymore. You have no agency to go on a mission. And now they're casting about to try and find some kind of doctrinal hook to hang that hat on. And they came up with baptism. It is such a bad argument. <laughs> That that's what makes me think that that's what's going on. They're not saying because of baptism, you don't have a choice about going on a mission. They're saying you don't have a choice about going on a mission. And, oh, it's because you got baptized. Yeah, and that's not the first time we've seen it work backwards and be portrayed as working the other direction. Right. Yeah. It's a reverse engineered argument. Yes, it is. Yeah. Ends justify the means. Um, any other thoughts from you guys? No, except I've had a great time tonight, and I really enjoy the, the callers. I enjoy what you have put together tonight, Bill, and I really enjoyed the comments and the insights that we got from Maven yeah, on amen. her perspective as a woman, which I cannot see very well. But when Maven or other women express it, sometimes, like tonight, I can see things that I was not able to see before. And whereas right. I think that the church puts a lot of pressure and takes away a lot of choice from all the members of the church, it is clear to me that even though it falls on all the members, it falls more harshly on the female members of the church. Because if you're a guy in the church, the only people you have above you are other guys. If you're a woman in the church, you have everybody above you, basically, or you have the potential to have everybody above you. What's the old, uh, the illustration is that when you're a, a full grown, you're, you're a 60 year old woman, you have done everything in life you're supposed to, you're your corporate president for crying out loud or whatever it is you might be. But you have to have the sacrament passed to you by a 12 year old. Is and you have to make him donuts. Year old? And you got to make him go home and donuts. Make donuts. Yes. And you got to listen to him when he comes home and tells you about his meeting. Right. And pretend that you're really impressed. Yeah. I did have one um, more to say, actually. Um, I just want to, well, um, thank everyone who donated because we did hit the 10,000 um, uh, goal um, for Mormon discussions on this episode. So, and uh, I think, it, I think John was in as a Mormon stories podcast, uh, encouraging people to do that. So I appreciate yeah, Thanks that. John. I saw that. Yeah. I appreciate that very much folks. If you want to help us out, you can either donate there to the right of your screen uh, other direction, I guess, right of your screen and uh, click the donate button, send us a few bucks. That is a hundred percent of that goes to us. YouTube pays the processing fee. And if you want to donate directly to us, you can go to mormonismlive.org, click the donate button 
uh, send us a, a recurring don a donation of a couple bucks a month and we would very much appreciate it. Uh, a lot of work goes into this and then we have a lot of fun doing it. And I think episodes like tonight um, are a big part of why this is so important because I think when you show the 20,000 foot view that the church at every turn is trying to get you to do exactly what it wants you to do. And that agency really isn't real. I think it gives people the education and the, and the uh, power to begin to make different choices. Okay. Have a great night, you guys. Good night, everybody. Bye. Bye.